read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, as we continue our series of studies on Sunday mornings through this wonderful account of Christ's continuing work through His apostles and by His Spirit. And we come this morning to another prayer meeting in the book of Acts. It's perhaps the shortest section remaining in our ongoing study, as we're only going to look at verse 23 through 31. But it's true, isn't it, that sometimes it's the shortest sections that are most significant in any study of God's Word. So let me read these verses for us and then pray for our time and we will begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you through His Word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed Through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Now, Father, we do praise you that you have created the seas and all that is in them, the skies and all that surrounds them, and that even by the word of your creative power, you have made us new in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have spoken the word of faith into our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit, that dry bones have been made living organisms and creatures according to your sovereign command. So send forth that very same spirit into our hearts this day, that your sovereign care and comfort would guide us, would lead us, would convict us. But raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord in life, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. I have long loved the ministry of a 19th century preacher named Charles Haddon Spurgeon, enough to have named one of our children after him. He was known as the Prince of Preachers in his time in the 19th century. It's kind of hard to fathom now exactly how acclaimed he was as a preacher. Because, of course, he lived in the time before you could easily download sermons, stream sermons, perhaps on a podcast app or some other live stream platform. But to give you a sense of his preaching power and and prowess, the degree to which he was, even in his own life, celebrated as a prince behind the pulpit, It was in his early ministry when he was just in his 20s that 10 million copies of his sermons were circulating through the English-speaking world. 
By the time he died in 1892, 50 million copies were circulating throughout the world. And it was only a few years later that 100 million copies translated into 23 different languages circulating through the early 20th century. Such was his power and his ability in preaching. He was a man that not only had capability in preaching, but deep desire and, and love for the work of preaching. And so years ago, I was surprised to stumble across this. I was surprised to have stumbled across this lecture that he gave to pastors in his pastor's college, uh, where he said he would gladly give up preaching sermons. And he said more precisely, if I had to choose between leading in preaching or leading this element of the worship service, I would always leave aside the preaching. Because he said, what I'm so desperate to always be doing, first and foremost, is what was known at the time as the public prayer, what we now call the, the pastoral prayer. He said, I would, quote, sooner yield up the sermon than ever give up the prayer. And as we come to Acts, what we've been coming to, as I've told you in recent weeks, is something of a study of early church preaching. There's been these Powerful sermons punctuating the story to this point, chapter 2, chapter 3. We saw last week, if you're with us, chapter 4, that the apostles' ministry was very much a preaching ministry. Remember, Jesus had commissioned them to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And what's, what's preaching? But just bearing witness to Jesus Christ. But we're also seeing, and I'm going to get to see again today, how the apostles knew that their preaching was always in vain if they first weren't a praying people. You know, kids, if you might think about it this way and consider every local church as something like a ship that's sailing along the sea, preaching, uh, a pulpit ministry is very much like the rudder on the ship, just directing it where it's going. Uh, but prayer is the sail that catches the Spirit's strength and power that drives that ship forward. And so some of you I know were raised in generations when regular prayer meetings, formal prayer meetings, corporate prayer meetings were pretty common, perhaps even a weekly reality in your experience in a local church. But if you have eyes to see in our context here in North Texas and no doubt throughout America, uh, precious few are the churches that have the same kind of regular prayer meetings punctuating their life together. I had a pastor recently tell me, you, you want to solve space issues in your church? Just pray more, because people will soon begin to leave. And it's sad, because it's so true. Surely, the most, or least attended, I should say, service in any church is a prayer service. Christians will go their entire life without ever gathering together for the express purpose of prayer, and what we find in Acts chapter 4 today is a text that's again telling us that would be completely foreign, perhaps even utterly un impossible to comprehend for an early church in this wonderful book because they were always impulsively and energetically gathering together to pray. And so we want to come to this text ready for the Spirit to convict us of our prayerlessness, not just individually, not just as a family, as we, we want him to do, uh, but even for us as a church, challenging our own commitment and primacy and, and priority to prayer, that we would never be a congregation that lacked because we never asked. So 
The prayer meeting of the persecuted church, that's our our theme this morning, and I want you to see three particular truths from uh, this prayer meeting, truths that no doubt will apply to our lives, three truths that come with just three simple words, unity, sovereignty, and, and bravery. So truth number one from our text today, pray in unity. You see verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, students, do you remember who the they are that verse 23 mentions here? It's Peter and John, these two apostles. And if you haven't been with us in recent weeks through Acts, you need to catch you up on something of the story because what's happening in chapter 3 and 4, and in many ways continuing in subsequent chapters, is this rapid succession of, of events in the early church. Because what we saw all the way back in chapter 3 was some 18 hours before our text that it was on one afternoon that the apostles, Peter and John, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, they're going into the temple to pray. And as they walk in, they come across this man, 40 years old, who had been lame from birth. He's asking for alms. He's wanting money, silver and gold, that that he can receive from these men. And, And Peter says, well, I don't have any of that. But what I do have is the name of Jesus Christ. So get up and start walking. And this man was leaping and praising God throughout the temple, causing, no doubt, a great amount of commotion there that this man who for years, perhaps even decades, people had seen always by the beautiful gate is now jumping around and the crowds are astonished by what they're seeing. And Peter comes along and uses that as a platform for preaching. He says, why are you so amazed? Uh, This man has been healed by faith in Jesus Christ, the very one whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. And the Sadducees, this group of religious elites, who didn't believe in a resurrection, heard the preaching of a resurrection, and they were greatly annoyed, we were told at the beginning of chapter 4. So they decided what Peter and John needed uh, was a night in prison while they figured out what to do with these resurrection-preaching rabble-rousers. So last week we saw, as the next day came, which is the day of our text, the Sanhedrin gets together, this council of 71 different leaders in Jerusalem trying to figure out what to do with Peter and John. And so they say, well, how did you make this miracle happen? By whose authority was this wonder performed? And Peter again, he uses it as this platform for preaching Jesus Christ. He says, why are you amazed? Because it's faith in the name of Jesus Christ whom you killed and God raised from the dead that this man is standing before you well. And what we saw at the end of last week's text, after Peter had called their attention to salvation being found in no one else other than Jesus Christ, that these Sanhedrin leaders were nothing more than cowardly bullies. They were man-pleasers because it says that they were just worried about the crowds. The crowds were all excited, understandably so, about this miracle. Oh, and the Leaders couldn't do anything with Peter and John. The crowd was so eager for this kind of miraculous power to continue. And so what we were told, if you just glance back to verse 21 of chapter 4, they threatened them further and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. And what do the apostles do immediately but go, the text says in our passage today, to their friends in verse 23. It actually should be translated as to their own. That's where they go immediately. They walk out and they go to their own. 
Uh, I'm, I'm sure some of you in, in time, perhaps all of you, will have a friend that uh, you might call a foxhole friend. You know, it's the kind of person that uh, you walk through adversity with, uh, you walk through trial with in such a concentrated manner that you might go seven or eight years without seeing this friend, but you might see him next week and you just begin to talk to each other as as though you had seen each other the night before, such as the depth of that relationship, such as, such as the binding nature of your friendship. And that's what the text is telling us was true here of the apostles and the early church. There was this covenantal bond that they had with one another. The apostles were desperate after they were released to go to their own. And I wonder if you would ever be able to say of the church of Jesus Christ, that's my own. There, there was a tie of friendship, that there's a bond of relationship that is unlike anything else I've ever experienced in the world, such as the connection that you have in Jesus Christ. And you see, they are praying in unity. Look at verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Ask yourself, when was the last time uh, that you gathered with God's people or a portion of God's people for the sole intent of praying together. You know, there are small groups that will sometimes meet here throughout the week in a various, uh, some part of the building, and they'll be just spending an hour or so praying together. Maybe you've been in something like that. I'm sure for a number of you in the room today, it's been years and years and years before you've ever done anything like that. Since you've ever done anything like that, perhaps even you've never done anything like that. Maybe you would come in two weeks as we gather to pray at the end of this month, as is our normal pattern. But they're praying in unity. I want you to see that it's their ordinary impulse. They don't have to be called to do it. They don't have to be exhorted to do it. They don't have to be stirred to do it. It's the most natural thing. We are released. We go to our own. And what do we do? Well, we pray together. Martin Lloyd-Jones was this Welsh preacher that shook London in the mid-20th century, and there was an occasion where a group of other ministers in the city had called him into this gathering that they were hosting, and they wanted to know something of the secret behind his, his unique ministry, uh, the secret behind his influential impact in the city. And as he was invited in, and as he came, they said, now... Doctor, we don't want anything about bloody atonement. We don't want to know anything about the sufficiency of Scripture. We want to know what is it that you are doing that's shaking London in this way. And as he reflected on that occasion some time later, he said, it became quite clear to me very quickly that we were worshiping a different God altogether. It's true that how you view God changes adjusts, improves even your ministry for God. Because what you see here as the text continues is it's their view of God, the apostles' view of God, the early church's view of God, that in every way is shaping their ministry. It's in every way shaping their prayer together because the bulk of our text is calling us to pray because of God's sovereignty. Pray because of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 24 as it continues. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. In the original, it just says despot. Sovereign Lord. I hope you know that there are few truths in Scripture. There are few 
attributes of God's character that can show utterly shake and change your life as knowing that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That our God is seated on high and he doesn't have to ask permission of anything or anyone. As we said in this room before, there's no such thing as a maverick molecule in the universe. An autonomous animal, an independent individual. God rules over all, controls all, ordains all, decrees all, providentially guides all. And it's because, of course, that he is sovereign, that his people pray. And I want you to see three aspects of his sovereignty that focuses their prayer. First, that he's sovereign in creation. Notice verse 24. Continue, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. When was the last time your prayer began by focusing on God as creator? If you read through the Psalms, you'd be perhaps surprised to see how often the psalmist begin the prayer by meditating on the majesty of God's creation-like power. You know, I increasingly wonder in our context here in North Texas, as we increasingly live in this concrete jungle that's a monument to what man has made, that it's warring against us in our spirituality by preventing us from knowing what God has made. Sometimes then wonder why it's seemingly why so many people will escape in the summer for vacations and retreats. And where do they go so often but places where God's creative power is shouting the glories of God. Mountains and seas and oceans and beaches and forests and hills and plains and creeks. And certainly I would imagine that many of you would sympathize with me when I say whenever I go to such places, there seems to be this refreshing rest that comes to the soul because you see what? Look at what God created. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And if he created that, so our family tendency is to go to these great mountains in the summer. And you should see a mountain and say, if he could just speak that into existence, why wouldn't we pray for him to speak into existence whatever it is that we need? He's sovereign in creation. Notice verse 25 and 26. He's sovereign in revelation. They continue, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set them against themselves and were gathered against your anointed. Do you know where this text in the Old Testament is found? It comes from Psalm 2. We're going to hear Peter, I'm sorry, Paul quote the exact same psalm in his great sermon in Acts chapter 13. It's quite clear then in the early church that Psalm 2 had a particular importance. And why wouldn't it? Because this passage is telling us, what is Psalm 2? Nothing other than the announcement that unbelieving nations rage against the Lord. They fight and war against His authority. And isn't that exactly what's going on in Jerusalem at this time, the apostles are saying? They've raged against the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. Their unbelief and their sin has meant that they've killed and crucified the eternal Son of God. But if you know the rest of Psalm 2, you know why it's such a comfort in prayer. Because they're raging against the Lord and His anointed. They are raging against His authority. And you know what Psalm 2 says about the Father up in heaven? He's just sitting on his throne laughing. 
as if it's actually possible to rage against his authority. But that laughter is not a comedic laughter. It's according to Psalm 2, it's a terrifying laughter. For he will soon hold them with words of fury and terrify them in his wrath. So you might be in here today and never thought about it in this way before. You haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and your unbelief means that you are raging against the Lord's anointed. And you are no threat to the sovereign God of the universe. In fact, he, he just laughs at your iniquity and unbelief as though you could actually stand against him. Because his wrath and fury will fall upon you if you don't turn. And there's gospel found in Psalm 2 because by the end, what does it say? But kiss the Son. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. How is it that you can be saved? How is it that you can find redeeming rest from God's rage? Well, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is sovereign in creation, revelation, no doubt. God's sovereignty also means for verse 27 and 28 that he's sovereign in predestination. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's not possible that God would be sovereign over all things if his enemies could surprise him, if his enemies could shake him, if his enemies could shock him. That's why Peter and the apostles, they find great comfort in this news that It's just the fulfillment of an Old Testament psalm, this rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are doing precisely what God has ordained from eternity past that they would do, that he might fulfill his good purpose in creation. So pray with unity. Pray because of God's sovereignty. We actually get to the request now in verse 29 and following, which tells us to pray for bravery. I know a man who was called to a local church and he had to go through those battering rams of interviews and panel question and answer sessions that often accompany a call to a senior pastor position. And in the great congregational Q&A and as he was fielding various questions, he, he realized that, that much of what he was hearing was as so often happens in these kind of settings, the church just wanted to know what is it that you're going to change about this place. And he thought many things needed to change, but at the same time, he knew that just patience and such things is wise. Yet he did say in that Q&A, there's one thing that needs to change right away. He said, this church is no regular time for prayer. And I don't know how we could live as a church without a regular time for intentional prayer. And that's true of the early church here. There's, there's a need to pray. There's a need to pray for their needs. Notice verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Well, the apostles, they're not taking the Sanhedrin's threats as empty ones. He says, look upon them. If you know the book of Acts well, you know how real those threats were. It's in chapter 4 that they're imprisoned. And they're let out because the leaders don't want to trouble the crowds. You know what happens in chapter 5? Apostles imprisoned again. But this time, beaten really within an inch of their life, probably. What happens in chapter 6? A deacon, he's arrested. 
What happens in chapter 7? That same deacon, Stephen, what is he? Killed. Stoned for his preaching of Jesus Christ. The threat is real. If they keep preaching, if they keep exhorting to look to Jesus Christ, because it's only in his name that salvation is found, what do they know is probably coming. Perhaps that was the threat that was unspoken, undefined in chapter 4. They know that martyrdom is on the way. And so they say, what do we need? Well, we need to speak, continue speaking God's word with all boldness. They need to be brave children. It should be something that even is added to our prayer journal that we, we can give the Lord great gratitude and thanksgiving that we don't live in an early church, axe-like culture. If you go share the gospel with someone this week, there's not a threat of imprisonment and martyrdom upon you. You should be grateful for that. But that doesn't mean that you won't face opposition, that you won't face adversity, that you won't face some degree of intimidation even for speaking of Jesus Christ and the truth of what's found in him. Maybe you too this week need to pray for boldness. Maybe you too need to pray to be brave, to speak the truth with a loved one who's very much on the road to destruction. But you know that such a conversation may sever that relationship. Perhaps boldness and bravery is needed in us. You see verse 30, they continue to say, Lord, soften the field. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, uh, Jesus. As students, all, all they're praying for here with these signs and miracles and wonders is that God is just plowing up the harvest field. He's getting it ready. He's tilling the soil that the seed of God's word, that the seed of the gospel would be ready to be implanted uh, by the Spirit. Maybe in the same way we need to pray often for the Lord to go before us as this church preaches as you share the good news, God soften the souls of those who are going to hear it. They pray for bravery. They pray because of God's sovereignty. They pray in unity. This is the prayer of a persecuted church. You know, I heard this week, just this week, a pastor whom I have profited from, whom I've profited much over the years, talk about the value of prayer meetings. And he's got kind of a comedic personality. And so he's one of those preachers that often says a number of things, I think, to a sarcastic effect. But sometimes I want to just kind of yank back and just keep it in his mouth without it being ever uttered. And he was exhorting that gathered audience. He was saying, I know it's not exciting to pray. And I thought, someone needs to stand up. Maybe I need to stand up and say, objection, misleading the audience. But maybe you know why he would say that. Because perhaps too many of us do actually believe that prayer is not terribly exciting. But notice how exciting it is as we begin to close. I want you to see two final things in God's answer from verse 31. First, God shakes. God shakes his praying people. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. He shakes homes. He shakes hearts in prayer. Maybe you know your Bible well enough to know that some of the greatest events in all of redemptive history find an earthquake coming along with it. God descends on Mount Sinai. The world shakes. God descends to defeat Jericho. The city shakes. God kills his son, Jesus Christ, at the cursed cross of Calvary. Jerusalem shakes. 
God opens the tomb to let loose his son three days later. It shakes again. And here is a prayer meeting shaking, quaking because of God's descent and power. Do you wonder maybe that perhaps even in our own time and experience, we're unfamiliar with God's shaking grace, God's shaking strength, because we just haven't asked for it. God shakes his praying people, and you'll see God supplies what they need, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The text ends with the answered prayer. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Answered prayers are oftentimes great motivations and spurs to pray more, aren't they? Maybe you have, I know some of you might, have this journal at home where it's you record the prayer request and then when the Lord answers that in another column, this is the date and time of the Lord's answered prayer. I know so many stories of saints that have gone by and ministers in years past that had that kind of a prayer journal. This record of God's kindness and grace and answering according to his sovereign timing and purpose, the need of his people. Uh, What do you need today? Well, ask the Lord for it. What have you asked the Lord for recently that he has quickly and immediately shaken and stirred and supplied that which was necessary? Uh, Don't you think that it's quite true that with many a church, even our own needs, almost as much as anything else, is a greater reflection of, of this prayer of a persecuted church. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would grow us in our knowledge of you. Your sovereignty, your justice, your righteousness and holiness would always be before our eyes and it always bow our knees. That in the Spirit's strength and according to our intercessor's mercy, that with boldness and confidence we would come to your throne of grace, knowing that you answer in our time of need, knowing that your majesty and might bend even your ear to listen to us and your arm to supply for us. So do give us that great grace. Do give us that which we need in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray it all in his precious name. Amen.